this universe that we live in taking place by chance, you know, I'm actually uh, teaching once again on biblical apologetics at Summit starting uh, <clears throat> July 11th, I believe it is, on a Monday night. And so, you know, I'm always, my son and I particularly, uh, actually both my sons are, are lovers of biblical apologetics as well. And I was laughing at a statement that was made the other day, you know, the unlikeliness of all of this taking place by chance, of us just being here, just, you know, random circumstances, natural processes, unguided the idea of that bringing all of this to pass is ridiculous. But I heard a statement made the other day by an astrophysicist, actually a guy by the name of Neil deGrasse Tyson. He's kind of a, uh, I guess you could say, a popularizer of atheistic thought. And he made a statement the other day that I just thought was the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. And I've, I've heard a lot of ridiculous statements, folks, by educated people. It's like one, one, uh, one fellow, he's a, got a triple doctorate out of Oxford. He's a believer and a triple doctorate out of Oxford, which says something. But he said, foolishness is still foolishness, even when somebody that's educated says it. Uh, but he made this statement. He said, well, you know, the, the things that make for life. Uh, and he mentioned three elements in particular, carbon, nitrogen, and hydrogen. He said they're abundant throughout the universe. So we should expect life just to be, you know, out there on other planets all throughout the galaxies. And I thought that's the most ridiculous statement I've ever heard in my life. If you think about it, you can have a scrapyard. Just imagine a scrapyard the size of our planet. And in that auto scrapyard, you can have metal, you can have rubber, you can have plastics. And that's about the same as saying, because all of these elements that create automobiles are in that scrapyard, we should see Buicks and Chryslers and Toyota Tacomas popping up out of that scrapyard. What's the likelihood of that happening without a mind and an engineer to design those things? And likewise, God is the ultimate engineer and designer of life. You know, you can put all the elements of life together in a test tube, and we still don't know how to get life out of inorganic matter. It's just a complete and total mystery. Why? Because only God knows how to do it. Amen? <laughs> I just had to throw that in there for fun, because, I mean, it is amazing when you think about the wonder of our God. And besides all that, I just want to remind everybody, if you haven't had a chance, my son and I on Wednesday nights on my Facebook page are doing, I don't know, we just, I don't know what you'd call them. We call it connections. It's just kind of a way of us getting together and talking about the things of the Word of God. But it's been really wonderful. We've had 100 plus views every week. And so we talked for five weeks about biblical apologetics. We talked the last couple of weeks about, uh, you know, the generation that's emerging, uh, you know, carrying the weight of the world on their shoulders and how to you know, overcome stress and anxiety and the pressures of this life. I don't know what we're going to talk about Wednesday, but it'll be something, and uh, it'll be fun. But if you want to join us, just go to my Facebook page, just search Randy Lane Bunch, you'll find me, if you're not already a friend with me. But on Wednesday nights, and then, you know, like I said, not everybody watches it live, but throughout the week, we accumulate a lot of views, and by the end of the week, it's always over 100, sometimes many more than that, so it's been really wonderful, and so we thank God for that. So join us if you can, and uh, we would love to have you. Well, today is Pentecost Sunday. So we want to talk about that. And uh, it's relevance to us today. So turn with me, if you would, to the book of Acts, chapter 2. And over the course of the service, we'll be reading most of that chapter. But we're just going to, you know, pick it up a little bit at a time. And so, Acts, chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 1 through 4. And if you want to just pretty much keep your finger in the book of Acts, we're going to be going back and forth there a lot. I'll be reading some other scriptures as well. In fact, the longer I've been preaching, now over 40 years the more I think it's important to let the Word of God speak for itself. Um, you know, Paul told Timothy, until I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, and doctrine. That's fundamentally saying, until I come, read the Bible, preach the Bible, teach the Bible. So that's what we try to do, right? Read, teach, and preach the Bible. 
But you know, a lot of times we do a lot more teaching and preaching than we do reading. And I think sometimes we get that a little bit backward. I think we need to give more time and place to the Word of God to let it speak for itself. So we're going to do a bit of both today. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Very familiar verses of Scripture. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them divided tongues of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Like I said, we want to talk about the significance, the relevance of Pentecost to us today. I believe it's important that we understand not only the historical fact of Pentecost, but also the experience of Pentecost, because they're both relevant to us. Pentecost was one of the three major feasts on the Jewish calendar. There was Pentecost, Passover, and Tabernacles. And with Passover and Tabernacles, there were actually three feasts that occurred, which comprised the seven feasts of Israel's year. And each of these major feasts, of course, corresponded to some great event in Israel's history. For example, obviously, Passover commemorated the coming out of slavery of Egypt through the blood of the Passover lamb. Pentecost was the commemorating of the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. Now, Pentecost just simply means 50. Pente, uh, or Pente is a, a Greek word for 50, so Pentecost simply means 50. And the reason why is because it took place 50 days after Passover. And there are three things that happened when God gave the law to Moses, as we said, Pentecost corresponded to the giving of the law. There were three things that happened when God gave the law of Moses that are significant to the day of Pentecost. Number one, God came down and fire was seen on the mountain. You know, every time God showed up, He started fires. He was a fire bug. But every time God showed up in His glory, there was fire on some, uh, in some uh, uh, level or another. Exodus 19.18 said, Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked greatly. So God came down and there was fire. Number two, and I didn't know this until I did a little bit of study on the giving of the law, but there's a rabbinic tradition that the law was promulgated or promoted in the 70 languages of the nation so that everybody could understand and receive the law. And then number three, when the law was given, you might remember 3,000 souls died due to that golden calf incident. You might remember that. By contrast, three things happened on the day of Pentecost which correspond to what happened at the giving of the law. Number one, God came down in the person of the Holy Spirit and there was fire. Remember that? Acts 2, uh, verses 2 through 3 says, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. It filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire and one sat upon each of them. Now, in the Old Testament, the people could not approach the mountain lest they died because of the presence of the Lord. But in the New Covenant, because of the blood of Jesus and because of the fact that we've been reconciled unto God, when the Holy Spirit came down upon them, God filled them with His presence and power. A complete contrast to the Old Testament. Number two, the 120 disciples who received the Holy Spirit spoke in the languages of the nations that were present. I know you are familiar with it, but Acts 2, verses 5 through 12. Listen to this. It says, There were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused, because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, 
Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? A complete reversal of the Tower of Babel. Instead of it being confusion and the nations being dispersed, God is bringing understanding and bringing one nation out of many. And then thirdly, on this day, instead of 3,000 souls dying, what happened? 3,000 souls were saved. Again, Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 36. Peter's preaching. He says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you, and to your children, and to all who are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day three thousand souls were added to them. Now that's a pretty good haul. I've, I've, I've seen a lot of people come to Christ, but never 3,000 souls in a day. Now Billy Graham, maybe so. But that's a pretty good way for the church to start. And how did it happen? It happened when God came down, brought His fire, unified the church, they went out with power, preaching the gospel, and the nations responded and came together in Christ. But even more significant in some ways in the long term is the fact that on the day of Pentecost, was when the Holy Spirit was made available to all believers. Now listen to Peter's interpretation of Joel's prophecy. In Acts chapter 2, verses 38 and 39, well, in fact, we're just going to read one part of this, then we'll read it later. But he said, remember he said, uh, I'll pour out my Spirit on your sons and daughters, and, uh, you know, they'll prophesy and so forth. But then no, listen to how he says we receive this. Acts 2, 38 and 39, Then Peter said to them, Repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. I like to say it this way, Jesus is God's gift to the world. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. But the Holy Spirit is God's gift to His children. In Luke chapter, what is it, 11, 13, or I think it is, the Bible said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father who is in heaven give the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him? So just as God gives Jesus to the world, He gives the gift of the Holy Spirit to His children. But notice the order. Peter says, number one, you must repent. Number two, you must be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission or the washing away of your sins. How many of you know that was new? Because in the Old Covenant, sins were covered from year to year by the blood of the Passover lamb and by other sacrifices. But they were not washed away. They were not remitted. They were still on the account. They were just kind of passed on. It's kind of like somebody deferring your payment year after year after year, but, but, but the debt wasn't canceled. But with Jesus, there's not just a passing over of our sins, but there is a remission, a washing away, a cleansing of our sin. Amen? So repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins. And then number three, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So this is how we come to God. And this is the order in which we experience relationship with Him and receive this wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But I want you to notice again, for us the day of Pentecost means the giving of the Holy Spirit to all believers. Now I want to look again, like I said, at how Peter interpreted Joel's prophecy. So we're going to read this in verse uh, Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. 
This is after everybody's amazed and stunned by what's taking place. Now let me just say something. This will come up again later. But a lot of people erroneously think that on the day of Pentecost, Peter and the other disciples spoke in tongues so that they could communicate the gospel to people from various languages. And I just want to qualify and say that's not exactly right. All the speaking in tongues did was create wonder and amazement. Nobody got saved when they heard the speaking in tongues. The Bible didn't say anything about preaching the gospel. It said they spoke the wonderful works of God. Then Peter got up in a language everybody understood, addressed the crowd, and preached the gospel, and then they were saved. What the sign of tongues did was it let everybody know God is doing something. These ignorant, unlearned boys are speaking in languages they obviously didn't learn because they didn't go to linguistic school overnight, right? So they were just simply, God was simply showing, I'm doing something, right? And then with that sign creating a platform of credibility for Peter to preach, he preached the gospel and people were saved. But notice how Peter interprets Joel's prophecy. Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 12. says, So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this mean? And so Peter explains. Others mocking said, These men are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk as you suppose, seeing it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last day, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my maidservants I will pour out of my spirit in those days. And they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I remember years ago, the Spirit of God gave me a message on this passage called Signs and Souls. When the Holy Spirit was poured out, there were two things that resulted from that. Number one, God showed Himself alive. You know, the whole purpose of signs was to show that Jesus was still alive. And you know what? He's still alive. And so we should still expect to see Him moving in humanity. Right? The Bible said sons and daughters prophesying, old men dreaming dreams, young men seeing visions. So I guess whether you're old or young depends on whether you're dreaming dreams or seeing visions. But you know, God is still showing up and revealing Himself to people today. It's, it's widely known by those who do work in the realm of missions that Muslims, by the scores, are having open visions of Jesus. Him revealing Himself to them as the Messiah. Uh, there was a wonderful book written some time ago by... Uh, a wonderful man of God who has since passed away. He died of stomach cancer, but his name was Nabil Qureshi. And Nabil was a great Christian apologist, or he became a great Christian apologist, but he was raised in a Muslim family. And his, his book, called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, is definitely worth the read. If that's the only legacy he left, what a legacy. But during his seeking after God, God revealed himself through a series of dreams that only someone coming from the Muslim world could understood because God used their own symbol system to reveal Jesus to Nabil through these visions and dreams. And that's happening repeatedly. In fact, one of the guys that works, I think it's for Open Doors USA, said, whenever I talk to a Muslim man overseas now, the very first question I ask him, you have any dreams or visions lately? And he said, without fail, almost, they'll say, yes, I have. And they're always the same about Jesus revealing himself, explaining that he's the Messiah, and there's great harvest in the Muslim world because God is still showing himself alive. Why? Because the Holy Spirit's been poured out. And what's the end result of all of it? Souls. 
We saw the signs. Thank God for the signs. You know, we preached last, last month our audience, our viewing audience for our broadcast was 5.1 million people. And out of that, we've had testimony after testimony, more than I could shake a stick at, of people, tumors disappearing, cripples being healed, uh, barren wombs being opened. We just got another one of those testimonies. So God is still alive. And if God is alive, should we not expect to see Him move and show Himself alive? Jesus is still alive and He's still showing Himself strong in the world today. So this is the work of the Holy Spirit in His New Testament Advent. And He works through you and me. You know, the Holy Spirit does nothing apart from the church. We're His hands and feet. The Holy Spirit empowers us. But if we're not acting, if we're not moving, He has nothing to empower. And so the whole point is that His Spirit is poured out on His sons and daughters, His men servants and His maidservants. Amen? So His presence is poured out on the church to empower them to be a witness and to reap the harvest. That's the purpose of Pentecost. And that's exactly what Jesus said. You remember just before He uh, ascended, He told them in Luke 24, 46-49, in fact, actually this is on the eve of His resurrection. It says, Then He said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of My Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. What were they to receive? Power. Power to be a witness and proclaim, not the giving of the law, but now the gospel of Jesus Christ to the nations. And that's exactly what Jesus said would happen. You remember in Acts chapter 1, he said something very similar. Now Luke was also the author of the book of Acts. You could call it Luke volume 1 and Luke volume 2. And that's actually what it is. So oftentimes scholars will call it Luke Acts. So in Luke 24, he said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And in Acts, he picks up that theme again. Let me read you these verses. I'm sure you're familiar with them. Acts 1, 4 through 8. So then being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. That's that language again. Which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So again, Jesus is emphasizing the power of being a witness. But I want you to notice what he says in verses 4 and 5 again. He said, being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to part from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you've heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So he likens, he's using these as a contrast, he likens this coming baptism in the Holy Spirit with the baptism of John. Actually, there are three baptisms that are represented on the day of Pentecost. In fact, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 2, talks about the doctrine of baptisms, plural, as being part of the fundamentals of the doctrine of Christ. But here's the three baptisms. Actually, there's four, but two of them refer to the same thing. Number one, John's baptism. John's baptism, you might remember, was a baptism of repentance. And then number two, baptism into Christ. And then number three, this baptism in the Holy Spirit. Now, Peter alludes to these three baptisms, but you kind of have to understand, you know, these three baptisms exist to see it in the language of the, of the passage. Acts 2.38, Peter said to them, Repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
Now, 20 years after the day of Pentecost, Paul ministers to a group of disciples in Ephesus, and you can see these same three baptisms present here as well. The baptism of repentance, the baptism into Christ, which is the new birth, and this baptism in the Holy Spirit, which is an endowment with power. Acts 19, verses 1-6. through 6. Listen to it. It says, And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. I grew up in that church, by the way. Anyway... Verse 3, and he said to them, into what then were you baptized? So they said, into John's baptism. So now Paul's got him located. Then Paul said, John did he baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, notice this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. So again, three baptisms. John's baptism... Baptism into Christ, and this baptism in the Holy Spirit. Now, as we said, John's baptism was not for salvation. That's why they're not done yet, right? This was a baptism of repentance. Now, if you want to know why were they only baptized into John's baptism... Now, the Bible calls them disciples, but they were only baptized into John's baptism. Why is that? Well, if you go back into Acts 18, the chapter before, you'll notice that there was a character by the name of Apollos. And Apollos was a very persuasive teacher. I would imagine he's kind of like a probably came from a law background. You know, just lay, lay down his case, line upon line, precept upon precept. He was a powerful teacher and persuaded many, but he only knew the baptism of John. So when he spoke in Ephesus, Paul's friends Aquila and Priscilla kind of pulled him alongside and kind of gave him the second chapter of the story. They told him, well, you know, John was pointing to Jesus, but now Christ has come. And so they explained the way of God more adequately to Apollos, and of course he continued to preach, adding the message of Jesus to his gospel. So John's baptism, which Apollos preached to these boys, was not salvation per se. It was a baptism of repentance to prepare the hearts of people for the coming of Jesus. Now, the word repentance is such an important word in our day-to-day. It's the Greek word metanoia. And it simply means a turnaround, a change of mind and heart, or a change of mind and purpose. It signals a turning around, a change, as I said, of mind and heart. The example I like best when I'm giving an example, what, what is true repentance? It was that moment when the prodigal son looked down at the pig pods and he said, I think I need to change. <laughs> you know, when you're eating pig slop and you came from a mansion, uh, you might come to yourself. It's that moment of coming to yourself when you realize, my direction in life is not working out. This is a, I need to turn things around. And so it's a turning away from sin, a turning away from the old life, a denial of the old path, and a recognition of a need for a new direction. So that's a baptism of repentance. Then number two, there's this baptism into Christ, this salvation or new birth experience. Now, there's kind of two baptisms going on here. Because there's a baptism in water, and then there's the actual spiritual baptism into Christ. Now, the baptism in water, we oftentimes call it an outward showing of an inward work, right? And, and a lot of times people will get saved today and they'll get baptized whenever, you know. And that, that even happened in the scripture sometimes. But water baptism was far more significant, I think, in the first century than we've made it today. Because oftentimes water baptism was kind of like, you might say, their sinner's prayer. It was their way of publicly professing their faith. I mean, when you got, you know, you got people going down in the water, like the Ethiopian eunuch, right? Going down in the water and coming up. That does two things. Number one, it publicly announces, I'm identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Very public. 
right? But number two, it's also a very visceral image that my old man is going down and staying down. Amen. And what's coming up out of that water, right, is a new creation, a new life in Christ Jesus. So there's water baptism, which symbolizes what's going on internally. And we, we can publicly identify, publicly identify with Christ that way. And by the way, baptism is commanded. It's not something that should be optional. We should desire to be water baptized so we can make that public declaration for Christ. doesn't mean you're not saved. If you haven't been water baptized, the thief on the cross had no chance for water baptism, right? And all he said is, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Amen. But at the same time, water baptism is important as an outward showing of that inward work. But there's also the spiritual work of regeneration, where the Holy Spirit comes into the sin-darkened heart of an unbeliever because they believe the gospel. And he does the work, we call it regeneration. The word regeneration in Titus 3.5 is two Greek words, palingenesis. And it literally means starting over or new birth. A new beginning is what it means. And so when we get born again, we have a new beginning. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And the Holy Spirit literally baptizes us into Christ. Listen to it. 1 Corinthians 12.13 says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. Notice that. By one Spirit we were baptized into one body. Or in other words, you could say it this way. It's the Spirit who baptizes us into Christ through the work of regeneration. When you get born again, something supernatural occurs. Why is that so important? I have met a lot of people who think Christianity is a self-improvement program. It's turning my back on old habits, and it's adopting new habits. Well, it, sure, it surely should be that in the disciple-making process. But that's not what makes a Christian. What makes a Christian is somebody who truly comes to terms with the claims of Christ, believes it, and experiences a supernatural regeneration of their nature and character. And they are born of God. The word life, you know, the Bible said we receive eternal life. That word life, zoe, doesn't just mean existence. How many of you know you're going to live forever, no matter what? It's just location, 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 right? I mean, so, so it's important that you understand where you're going to live and why you're going to live there. So faith in Christ puts you in God's family and gives you a hope of eternal life with the Father. But just ever ongoing life is guaranteed to every person born into the planet, right? But not eternal life. Zoe life, which gives us the very life of God, makes us His children, is imparted to those who have faith in Christ. So, there's water baptism, then there's the baptism into Christ, which is a work of regeneration by the Holy Spirit, and then there's this baptism into the Holy Spirit. Now, it's worth asking the question, if the Spirit baptizes us into Christ, who baptizes us into the Holy Spirit? And the Scriptures are not silent on that. Listen to what the Bible here says, Acts 2, 32 and 33. Peter's preaching, he said, This Jesus... God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He poured out this, which you now see and hear. Now this is not the first time that Jesus is shown to be the baptizer in the Spirit. Listen to what John the Baptist said, Matthew 3.11. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I, I am not worthy to carry. Notice this. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now that's significant to me because it shows these are two distinct works. There's a baptism in Christ that the Holy Spirit does when we become part of Christ's body. 
But then there's a baptism in the Holy Spirit, which is an endowment with power that Jesus does to fill us with His presence and power. So there's a distinction between those two experiences. This is exactly what Jesus said in Acts 1.5. John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So number one, we repent of our sins. Number two, we receive Jesus, or baptized in His name, that's the new birth, and then we receive this gift of the Holy Spirit. Now it's interesting to me that ten years after the day of Pentecost, let me just give you a little bit of context here. Pentecost happened, of course, when Pentecost happened. Ten years later, Peter goes to Cornelius' household. Ten years after the day of Pentecost, they finally figure out Gentiles can be saved too. <laughs> took them a while. Have you ever had things just take you a while? Took the church a little while. They thought it was all going to be a Jewish community. And, and you know, it's, not a, it's a hard sale. Because Jesus, or God has to give Peter a vision three times. Right? On the housetop for him to get it. That, that you know, that, that uh, blanket let down three different times. That sheet let three times. With all this unclean meat and stuff. And, and uh, you know, why is Peter slay and eat? Oh, no, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. Uh, and he said, what I've cleansed, don't you call unclean or common. And so what he's letting him know is, hey, I'm going to bring the Gentiles into this thing. And I don't want you to look down at them because they're not Jewish boys. Right? They're not good kosher Jewish boys. These, these are people whom I am cleansing with my blood. So listen to this in Acts chapter 10, verses 44 through 48. Ten years after the day of Pentecost. It says, Now while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord, and they asked him to stay for a few days. So water baptism obviously is important, but the Holy Spirit didn't wait for their water baptismal time, right? He comes upon them, fills them with His presence. You can say it this way, they were baptized into Christ, baptized in the Holy Spirit. They said, well, since God's already done this, I guess we might as well follow up and get these boys officially, you know, water baptized. So that's exactly what took place. So they got saved, and God just kept filling them up to overflowing. And then Peter said this, and, and notice, notice again what Peter says. Acts 2, 38-39, I read it a while ago. Peter said to them, Repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then notice what he goes on to say. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call. So he's referring to this promise of the Holy Spirit. And what he's saying is it's not just for this generation. He said it's for your generation, it's for the generation of your children, and it's for all those generations that come after whoever the Lord God shall call. Does God break His promise? No. So that promise is still available to us. Not just the promise of new life, but the promise of power so that we can be a witness to Jesus Christ on this earth. It's a straight line to you and I. On the day of Pentecost, the church received that power. Ten years later in Cornelius' household, Jewish proselytes received not only the new birth, but they received this gift of the Holy Spirit. And then another ten years later, about 19 to 20 years after the day of Pentecost, Paul goes up to Ephesus and finds those Ephesian disciples, and they're baptized, baptized or they're, they're, uh, they have received the baptism of repentance, they're baptized in the name of Jesus, and they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And what's interesting to me in every one of those incidences, not only were they receiving the gift of God, both of the life of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, 
But the Bible said in each of those occasions they spake with tongues. Now, the reason why that's important, because again, a lot of people thought, well, God did that on the day of Pentecost because He had to communicate to a lot of folk. But it shows that there's an ongoing supernatural dynamic between God and His church. And throughout church history, I've got wonderful books, 2,000 years of church history, showing that this continued line of God showing up in power through His church, whenever hungry people would go back to the roots of Acts, and say, God is still God. The Holy Spirit is still the Holy Spirit. We still need this power today to persuade an unbelieving world that God is alive. That Jesus is indeed resurrected from the dead. God visits His church in power. And so, Pentecost is not just history. Pentecost is a vital, present-day experience. Where the power of God can still be witnessed and experienced, both in our lives, and also through us, to a waiting church. You know, our waiting world, I should say. Yes. It's interesting to me that um, we live in such a high, highly skeptical uh, time in the West. You know, uh, secularism is on the rise, rejection of the you know, biblical worldview in favor of, you know, this skepticism, this scientific materialism, whatever you want to call it, has kind of replaced our faith in, in God, right? And we're, we're kind of, as a nation, exchanging one for the other. It's interesting to me, though, so wherever you go in parts of the world where the supernatural is still believed, you see it manifest both on the side of evil and the side of good. You see both the power of God and the power of the enemy displayed, like Aaron was talking today about the power of the devil. That was very much on display in Texas a few weeks back. Right? So the devil's still showing up. Yes. Is what I'm saying. Yes. And now you know the church still has to show up. Amen. Because we've been authorized by the head of the church to witness for him to represent Him in the earth, to be empowered witnesses for Him so that His glory can be still seen and witnessed in the earth. Amen? Amen. I still think revival can and will be seen in America. But it's not going to happen independent of and apart from the church. It's going to happen because believers get back to that humility of Acts chapter 2 and say, God, we can't do it without you. We need the power of your Spirit to enable us to be a witness to the world. Show yourself strong, O God. Amen? And He will do so because He's still the God of heaven and earth. Amen? Aren't you glad God doesn't get old? He's outside of time and space. I think some people think, well, God used to have it. But you know, He's older now. And uh, you know, it's a little harder for Him to do these things. No, it's not any harder for God to show Himself strong. He's still the God who split the Red Sea and caused the sun and the moon to stand still. But we need people praying prayers like Joshua, like Moses, right? We still need that uh, simplistic faith to believe that God is still God. Amen? Let, let's pray. Father, we pray that as we uh, approach Pentecost, or as we experience Pentecost, that indeed it would not be merely a matter of history to us, but that it would be a vital and present experience for us, for each and every one of us. Father God, that the very pages of the book of Acts, which are still being written in the church, would include our participation in these last days, in this hour. Father, we need your hand to move mightily. How desperate we are in our nation for a move of God. How desperate we are for our children to see the power of God. That they might know that you are alive among us. That Jesus is indeed resurrected from the dead. And alive in his church. Father, we thank you the gates of hell shall not prevail against your church. That church that's been raised up by the Spirit of God and empowered by him to do the works of Jesus. We give you thanks and praise for it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.